If you have your Bible, please turn in it to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking today at verses 14 through 17. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles that's on the end of each pew. And that Bible, it should be on page, just like the very end of 949 and then mostly on 950 today. It's always an exciting moment when we go to a new page in the book of Romans, isn't it? Let's read this together. Romans 15, verses 14 through, uh, through 17. This is Paul speaking to the church in Rome. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The best kind of a friend is the one who will tell you the truth. Uh, The friend who can tell you in some kind of a way that still is, is nice, still makes you know that you're loved, that in fact, yes, you do look fat in those pants, and you should probably pick something else. Part of telling the truth is, is to be able to tell each other the hard things and to do that in a way that's love and not to just sit around and be a flatterer, to try to be liked. But I, I want to say also that sometimes we really know that and sometimes we just delight in telling the hard things to the exclusion of telling the really, really good things as well. And so that's part of being truthful, speaking the truth in love to each other too, is not just a willingness to tell the hard things, but also a willingness to tell the things that are good, the things that are uplifting. These are things that could really easily go unsaid, but that are true and that are encouraging that we see in each other. And as as Christians, this is a practice that is good to cultivate, is to look at each other who are brothers and sisters in Christ and to consciously think, where do I see in this brother, in this sister, evidence of God's grace? ways that God is making them more and more like Christ. And when I see those things, how can I tell them about that? How can I tell the truth in love to say, here is how I see God's grace at work in you. It's not just encouraging to the person to do that, but it's glorifying to God uh, to be able to put those things forward. Because what it really is, it's, it's not about flattery. It's not about trying to puff someone up with pride. It's about saying, God is glorious, God does good things, God is gracious, God keeps giving grace upon grace, and it's glorifying to God to say, I see God's grace at work in you. That's the kind of thing Paul is doing at this point for the church in Rome. And so it's a good thing to imitate, but also to take in what it is that he says about that grace and to be built up in it. He's talking about God's grace at work in them as Christians, even as he just knows about them from afar and has never actually gotten to visit that church yet, he is telling them, from what I have heard about you from these trustworthy sources, here is what I hear, the grace of God at work in you, and I want to encourage you in that. He's also going to tell them that he's told them some bold things, some hard truths as well, and that even the grace that he sees at work in himself is something that's to the glory of God and not to the glory of himself. So this is about God's grace at work in believers, 
how we can be satisfied in God's work as we look at each other and even as we look at ourselves and what we could do in good works for God. The context of where we come to today in chapter 15, verse 14, is we're kind of starting to come close to the end of this book. And as we've done that, we, I hope you have followed along a little bit, those who've, who've been around a while. Maybe, maybe you haven't been around a while, and that's fine. But um, there's various sections in the way that this book of the Bible is laid out. This book of the Bible is actually a long letter. Uh, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. It's a church that he hoped to visit in person, and eventually later on he would visit in person. Ended up in Rome by way of a prison ship. Uh, that's, that's a story you can read about in Acts. But, um, but before he had visited, he, he wanted to write to them, to encourage them, to deal with some things that had to do with their specific situation. But in that, just to lay out, here is the gospel. It's the gospel that is for Jews. It's the gospel that is for Gentiles. It is the gospel that is for human beings. That we're all fallen in sin, and the way to be saved is not by our works, but it's by God's grace. And it comes to us and is received by faith in Jesus Christ, who's the propitiation for our sins. He lays that out. He talks about not just what the gospel is, but the confidence that we can have in Christ through the gospel, through believing in this, this Jesus, that we can be confident whether we walk through suffering uh, or whether we find ourselves having sinned and grieving over our sin, that we can have confidence that we have peace with God. Uh, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. He talked about some of the difficulties of what's going on with God's plan for, for ethnic Israel and how does that relate to the larger church and, and, and this, this, this reality that God is the one who is over the salvation of all human beings, whether Jew or Gentile. He has a plan for how he's going to form his true olive tree, his true church, his true Israel. Went through all of that, and then when we got to chapter 12, you see that he, he starts taking all of this truth of the gospel and saying, therefore, therefore, as you believe this stuff, present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable through faith in Jesus. So, so that's kind of what the rest of the book has been so far, is because the gospel is true, because you are in Christ, therefore be what it is that God has declared you to be. Live, live the truth of who God has said that you are. Now I am avoiding saying the term live out the gospel, because you can't live out the gospel. The gospel is good news of what Christ has done for us. What he's saying is, the implication is, therefore, be obedient to God in his good rules, in the law. And he's laying out just the beauty of what it is to follow God through his law. And I, by law, I'm not talking about getting stuck in the Old Testament sacrifices. I'm just saying, God has said, here's what it is to love God and to love people, and as somebody who has been loved by God, now move forward in that love for God and love for man. And so that's been the gist of it. And, and he, he made some specific applications to the situation in the Church of Rome back starting in chapter 14 through halfway through chapter 15, uh, where he's saying, look, I know that you have this specific situation, 
that's kind of related to the tensions that you have in your church between Jewish background believers and Gentile believers, and that it has to do partly with that, and and not necessarily just down those lines, but some people want to stay in these practices that they think if they don't stay away from certain meats that they're going to they're going to dishonor God or or various things like that. He says, look, you've got some in your, your church who are weak in their faith. They haven't grown to understand these things yet. Some who are stronger in their faith, but you need to with one voice glorify God together. So kind of the main layout of the book is, is you've got here's the truth of the gospel for everybody. Here's how to put it to work in your life as an obedient Christian who with love and now, as he's starting to wrap up, he's going to move toward, here's my travel plans for what's coming up after I write this letter. Here's all the names of the people that, that I know in your church, most of whom were probably Jews who got kicked out of Rome and then got to go back and, and rejoin that church. And, and he's, he's going to greet all these people by name. But as he transitions into that, that's where we are today. He's just going to say, hey, I, I want to encourage you and I want to build you up. I want to say God's grace is at work in you. And thank God God's grace is at work in me too. So that's what we have today. He first says, there's three points on the back of your bulletin because there's three is a good number. We have grace to instruct one another. Grace to instruct one another. Verse 14 says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Let's think about those things that he just said. He said, first of all, I'm satisfied that you are full of goodness, which is an interesting thing to say because I think most of us here know that Jesus said, there is no one good but God alone. So Jesus taught very clearly If you're going to try to go to heaven by being good, you're not going to make it because you're not good. And in that sense, we all need to have that sink into our hearts. By the way, he was saying that not just even about those who haven't come to faith yet. He was saying that about everybody. So even as Christians, we can't come before God and say, I am morally pure. I am a good person. This is why you should accept me. Jesus taught otherwise. That's why we have to be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, and nothing of ourselves. But we got to put that together. That's from Mark 10, 18, where he says, no one is good but God alone. Got to put that together with the truth that almost seems like it doesn't go together with it. That in Galatians 5, 22, part of the fruit of the Spirit is goodness. Goodness. And that's the the exact same word that's being used here in Romans 15. There's two words for goodness in in the Greek New Testament, and they both mean the same thing. But it is actually the same word here as well. And, and, And so that goodness, he says, is something that even though we're never going to be good in the way that we can say, I'm a good person, God ought to let me into heaven because of it, we can actually, by God's grace, as believers, do things that are pleasing to Him, be pleasing to Him, grow in what the Bible calls goodness. Before we came to Christ, that wasn't possible. Before we came to Christ, everything that we would have presented to say, this is why I'm a good person, these are my good works, 
are described in the book of Isaiah as being like filthy rags because they would all just be tainted with our sin. But once we've come to faith in Christ, once we've been washed clean and forgiven by His blood, justified by faith, we can actually grow in the fruit of the Spirit that is goodness. There's three ways that the Bible in the New Testament describes this goodness. Okay? And all three of these are wrapped up in it. One is moral clarity, another is moral integrity, and the third is benevolence that benefits others. There's a moral clarity to goodness, to being full of goodness. Hebrews 5.14 says, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Part of the goodness that God grows in us as Christians is that we no longer have the impression that everybody just automatically knows what is good and evil. We grow in constant practice, growing in our faith, growing by maturity to distinguish good from evil. It's funny how just about any unbeliever that you meet on the street, if you say, are you a good person, they would say yes, and you say why, and they start listing out the things that they say that are good. And you meet just about any Christian, and you say, are you a good person? And they say, absolutely not. God is here. I am here. But at the same time, with that mark of maturity, of knowing that we're so, so far from the goodness of God, we can work it out. We can constantly practice and train ourselves to know, hey, that's the path of evil that I didn't realize before. That's going to take me down some ugly things. There's the path of good. When we just assume that we know it, then we're not really growing in goodness, but by constant practice, we can grow in that moral clarity that's involved in goodness, according to the Bible. A second aspect of goodness in the Bible is moral integrity. Moral integrity. That's probably the one that we think of most when we say a good person. Moral integrity. But Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 35. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his treasure, brings forth evil. He's saying there is this, this moral integrity that flows out of a heart integrity. If you want to be growing in goodness, you need to be on a constant basis laying your heart bare before God. Because it's from that inward treasure, from, from the good treasure, that you'll be able to bring forth good. We need God to search us, try us, see if there be any wicked way in us, and lead us in the way of everlasting. So there's moral clarity, there's moral integrity, and there's also in goodness is a benevolence that benefits others. A goodness that's not just personal to me, but that actually is good for the people around me. The people around you. That's what goodness is in terms of Romans 12, 20, where it says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That as Christians, seeking to be full of goodness, seeking to grow in the fruit of the Spirit that is goodness, we need to be seeking to grow in actually benefiting other people, whether, we, whether they would consider us to be friends or enemies. So, there's goodness. He says, I am 
confident, I'm satisfied that you yourselves are full of goodness, which that fullness we talked about last week, but it's being filled up more and more, being more and more complete like Jesus. And he says, here's a way that I have heard about what's going on in your church, that there is goodness, the fruit of the spirit of goodness growing. And then he says, filled with all knowledge. Now we have to say, okay, you can't just take that out of context and say, therefore they knew everything that God knows. That's not what filled with all knowledge means. It's, it's the same kind of idea of being more and more completed in Christ by, by filling up, maturing. And part of that maturing in Christ is knowledge. It's knowledge. Now if you have knowledge without putting it to work in your heart and in your life, that's not worth very much. But I've also got to tell you, it's not going to get to work in your heart and your life unless it gets in your head first. There has to be a head knowledge before there can be a heart knowledge and a, and a life action. And so that's why it's so, so valuable to do things. Well, I mean, there's a hundred reasons why it's good to study our Bibles, but this is one of them. You just come to know things that you didn't know before you studied your Bible. You come to, to have beautiful truths from God implanted in your heart that are not about the things that you went and opened your Bible asking about. Uh, we, we grow in knowledge as we go into the Scriptures and have a regular practice of a devotion, uh, a personal devotion of taking in the Bible, meditating on it, studying it. Also, not just that, but, but coming under the preaching of God's Word. Regularly hearing God's Word brought out in exposited settings like this. And I know a lot of you guys love to take in faithful preaching through things like podcasts and YouTube videos and stuff like that. And that's good, absolutely, as long as you've got a faithful preacher and not one of those guys who's, who's getting 1.1 million views in 10 days because that's probably not a faithful preacher. All right, But um, we need to grow in knowledge. And not just that even, but even things like, you, you know why we have a book nook? It's because it is good to grow in knowledge from, from faithful teachers who can go deeper in written teachings than we can go in things like a sermon. So it's good to grow in knowledge. And Paul says, you Philippian believers, or excuse me, Roman believers, I, I see that you are full of all knowledge. He says something similar to the church in Philippi in, in Philippians 1.9. He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Not just an ignorant kind of, oh, I feel love, but, but a, a genuine love that goes together with knowing the truth and discerning. That's what he's saying is he, he is detecting a, an evidence of God's grace at work in the Roman Christians. So filled with all knowledge, goodness, knowledge, and then also this. With that goodness, with that knowledge, he says, able to instruct one another. Able to instruct one another. Sometimes there's, there's a feeling like, well, nobody can teach the Bible unless they're in the clergy class. Paul says, I trust that you Christians are growing up in your faith and able to teach each other. The kind of, kind of teaching that he's talking about, this instructing one another, it, it, it encompasses a lot, but it, it mainly seems to have to do with this idea of taking the truth of the Bible, bringing it out, and applying it to lives. 
applying it to what's actually going on with a person's words and actions, maybe even their hearts. It, 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 it's the same word that this word nuthetic comes from. Now, some of you have heard that. Some of you just got really, really excited when I used the word nuthetic. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? Well, it's this idea of biblical counseling. There's a biblical counseling movement that um, in the modern sense, it began in the 70s. Uh, in the real sense, it began at the resurrection of Christ. <laughs> but the basic idea, or I could say even you know, back with the writing of the book of Genesis, the basic idea is that as we as believers go to our Bibles, grow in Christ, come to a faithful understanding of what's in Scripture, that part of what God is going to do is He's going to make us able to actually take the words of the Bible and help apply them to each other's lives. Even in such a way that it's not, it's not just like, hey, did you know that this is a theological truth? But hey, did you know that this Bible truth that if I just said it out loud, you'd say obviously that's, a, that's true, that actually means you need to change your behavior. You see, another way that this word could be translated of instructing one another is admonishing one another, of being able to look in each other's lives and say, here's what you need to change. Now, granted, there's got to be a lot of love behind that, okay? But we also need to have a lot of humility as those who might receive this. All of us need to receive this. We, we need... And it's, it's not all that complicated. I realize that there are those who, who specialize in, in counseling of various kinds, and, and I, could, I could never claim to be as equipped as a counselor as Jim Neuheiser is, who's, who's teaching biblical counseling uh, down at, at, uh, at Reformed Theological Seminary. I mean, that's not what I mean, but I do mean this, and I think this is what Paul means. There are simple truths of Scripture that we all get, that we all are prone to think don't apply to us unless we have a brother or sister in Christ come and say, wait a second, did you know that you actually do need to have a daily quiet time? You should probably change your daily habits so that you can do that. Did you know man, husband, father, leading his family, did you know that you're actually supposed to step up and take initiative in your home? And, and, and that man would probably, as a believer, say, of course I know that, but at the same time, sometimes you just need to be told, wait a second, it's actually me. The fact that I know that doesn't mean that I'm doing that. I need to be told. You could go down the list of so, so many things that we just need each other to tell each other. And that's what he's saying here. I am satisfied about you. You're growing in goodness, you're growing in knowledge, and because of God's grace in you, you can actually instruct, admonish, teach one another. And that's a beautiful thing. And so that's evidence of God's grace, and when we see that in each other, we can also follow Paul's example to say, I see you growing in goodness. I see you growing in knowledge. I see you being used in other people's lives to instruct others and thank you, and thank God, praise God for His grace in you. Secondly, the apostles, Paul and the other apostles, had grace to write boldly to us. 
Now I say to, to us, he's about to say in verses 15 and 16 about the boldness that Paul specifically had to write to the Roman church specifically. But this is a greater principle too. This is the apostles of Jesus Christ writing boldly to the people of Jesus Christ, which is us. He says, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You need to know that Jesus himself didn't sit down and write out the New Testament. That was not part of his earthly ministry. What Jesus did do, the way that we got the New Testament, the way that we know the teachings of Christ, is that Jesus delivered his teachings, his message, to the apostles, which was a set group of men that he chose to be the ones who would directly receive his instruction and then be the ones to help establish the church and bring those teachings. That's how we got the New Testament. By the way, that's one of the reasons why it kind of, I mean, I'm not going to tell you you need to get rid of your Bible if it does this, but it, it kind of bugs me a little bit when you've got red letters in your New Testament, as though those are more the teachings of, the, of Jesus than the rest of the New Testament. This is all the teachings of Christ that God has delivered to us. But that's what's going on here in the letter to the Romans, is you have an apostle, Paul, who is delivering the teachings of Jesus Christ to the church in Rome. But as he's doing that, he's also aware that he's doing that for us. That this, this is scripture that God is using him to write. And that this is something that's going to be used by the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ to know the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ from now until the time that Christ returns. You, you see that in places like 1 Corinthians 14, as Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And then 1 John 4, 6, this is the Apostle John saying this. He says, we are from God. And by we, he's talking about the apostles. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The idea there is that those who know and love God are going to recognize that the teachings of the apostles are the teachings of Christ. And the things that go against that are not the teachings of Christ. And so that's how God delivered to us these letters and other books of the New Testament that give us the teachings of Christ, through the apostles and through their prophetically gifted associates as well, uh, who delivered that same teaching that was from the apostles. And so as, as Paul is writing here, he's writing as a minister of Christ, and that's what he's talking about. When he says a minister of Christ, he's not talking about me. I am not a minister of Christ in the sense that Paul is talking about being a minister of Christ. He's talking about his apostleship. He, he is talking about how Jesus appointed him to be a minister to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the offering uh, of the gospel of God. He's saying, Christ commissioned me to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He expressed that already back in chapter 11, verse 13, where he called himself an apostle to the Gentiles. 
He expressed that in chapter 1 where he said, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the, the nations or the Gentiles. He, he told a whole story about this in the book of Galatians as the churches in the region called Galatia seemed to be influenced by this false teaching that was included in it. No, Paul's not a real apostle. He told the whole story about how Jesus made him an apostle, even though he wasn't one of the original 12 who walked around with Jesus during his lifetime. But he, he says that that was even recognized in Galatians 2.9 when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars in the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Saying, yes, the Lord gave me this apostleship and specifically the mission of reaching out to the Gentiles. In fact, Peter, another apostle, even affirms that the letters that Paul writes are Scripture. That's in 2 Peter 3.16 where he says this. And that's what he's talking about. I have this grace. I have this grace given me by God to be a minister to the Gentiles, a minister of Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, it's because I was great. You remember what Paul was doing before Jesus came to him? He was persecuting the church. He was a blatant, outright, open enemy of Christ and his church, trying to get Christians killed. And you know what? Some of those Christians who died with Paul standing by the side approving of that, when, they, when, when Paul entered heaven, they were there cheering. Isn't that amazing? So this wasn't because Paul was you know, some sort of a meritorious figure. It's by God's grace. That's what he expresses. I've been given grace. And because I've been given grace and because I've been given this mission... I've written to you, and some of the things that I've written were bold. So right after he affirms them and saying, I want to I show, I know about God's goodness in you and, and God's, uh, the, the knowledge that you're growing in and your ability to instruct one another, he says, I've also written to you some bold things. I've, I've written to you some things of points of correction, some things that are points of reminder. You already knew these things, but you needed to be reminded of them. You needed to be told these apply to you. He says, I've been bold. Now, we, we, as I read that, I kind of wonder, wh which verses of Romans is he talking about? What are the verses that Paul considers to be the bold verses in Romans, where he really had to you know, kind of get his courage up and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this. <laughs> and I guess we, we don't know for sure. You know, it, it, he doesn't say exactly here, I was bold when I wrote to you about blank. But I, I kind of suspect that it, this probably has to do with the ways that he was specifically addressing some of the hard situations in their church. Some of the ways that he was dress, addressing, hey, here's where I see from the reports that I've gotten about what's going on in this church that there, there's you know, kind of little cracks of division that are coming along this line, and you really, really need to be careful there. And those who are strong really, really need to be willing to give up their freedoms so that they can be of, of unity and one voice with those who are weak and to help build them up in their faith. And, 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 and we see all that, and we just need to know, hey, sometimes when we, as Christians, read our Bibles, our Bibles speak to us boldly. And when I say boldly, I mean they address the stuff that is right at the heart of what's going on. 
right at the heart of where you are going astray, where I am going astray, where our church might be going astray. Sometimes the Bible just says, boom, here it is. By the way, that's one of the reasons. There's other reasons too. That's one of the reasons why I think the most healthy way to preach, not the only way, but the most healthy way on a regular basis to preach is to go through books of the Bible. Because if you're, if you're not just taking the next verse, then you're going to be pretty prone to skip over the bold stuff. The stuff that gets at what's really going on. But the Bible gives us that. Paul the Apostle gave the church in Rome that. All of the apostles and the prophets in all of the scriptures are going to give us that. Not just the encouragement, but also the bold stuff. Here's what you need to fix. But he says, I gave it to you boldly by way of reminder out of this priestly service that he had been given, this priestly service to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, as he puts it in Ephesians chapter 3 this priestly service where he is commissioned by God to win Gentiles to Jesus. To win those who were far off to the Christ who is over all, who came from the people who were called the Jews, who, who lived and who died to fulfill all of the promises that were given about the Redeemer to the Jewish people in the Old Testament. His, his commission was to go out to the nations and to bring people in through faith in this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, so that we could be reconciled to God and brought in. Isaiah 66 had a prediction of this, about the Gentiles, like me, being brought in as this pleasing sacrifice to God. This is not about making some kind of a new sacrifice. When Paul talks about his priestly service, he's not saying that he's a priest. He's not saying that we need to start calling our clergy priests or something like that. I don't even like the word clergy. I apologize. All right. Uh, so he's not saying that. He's saying, look, we worship God, and part of the worship that God has given to me is to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would be a pleasing offering to God, sanctified by the Spirit. But I said Isaiah 66 predicts this. Here's what it says, Isaiah 66, 19. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing that God had said right there, I am going to bring Gentiles into my people, and I'll even make some of them priests. That's a bizarre thing to say when God has said, it's only the descendants of Aaron who can be priests. But you know what Jesus did? Our great high priest, he made the final sacrifice once and for all on the cross. He ripped the curtain in two, made it possible for us to approach God within the veil by faith in him. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to our God forever and ever. He has made us a kingdom of priests. We come in by God in Christ and as we do this, as people are brought in by faith, as people are 
cleansed and forgiven of their sins and sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says that by this, this is an acceptable offering to God. Did you know that you can only be acceptable to God through Christ? There's all kinds of things that you can try to do to prove that you are good and to prove that you're acceptable. You could found a charity that does all kinds of good things all over the world. You, you could give all kinds of money to all kinds of people and all kinds of good causes. You could cut off every addiction that you have struggled with in your life and replace them with good habits and teach others how to do the same and become a motivational speaker who's helping people improve their lives. There's all kinds of things that you can do, but did you know that none of those will be an acceptable offering to God unless you've been washed clean by the blood of Christ and sanctified by the Holy Spirit? As we said in Sunday school this morning, from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God. But by faith we can be presented to God not as a sacrifice like somebody that has to be killed to pay the price, but as a sacrifice that is a pleasing gift to God. We can actually be pleasing to God. In fact, he told us that not just that Paul was involved in this kind of a priestly service, but each and every single one of us as Christians needs to be involved in this. He said this in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And as we present ourselves to God, he says, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, to keep on growing in holiness as we are indwelt by the Spirit of holiness, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And then third, we can glory in Christ when his grace works through us. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, that is not the best way to translate this, but the best way to translate this is kind of hard to figure out because the Greek grammar is a little bit convoluted here. And so that's why if you go to a bunch of different translations, you'll see a bunch of different translations. Uh, the the uh, King James says, I have therefore whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. I don't know what that means. The New American Standard says, therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Or I'll give you the Daniel Wigginton literal wooden translation. Therefore I have grounds for boasting in Christ Jesus, colon, that which is for God. Here's, here's the gist of it. Here's, here's what this seems to mean. Okay? I, I don't particularly like the, uh, the ESV translation of this verse because it inserts the words, my work, which are actually not present in the verse. What it, what it seems to mean, though, it does have something to do with what it is that I'm doing for God. It seems to be that he's saying that the things that I, Paul, do for God they happen because Christ Jesus is working His grace in me. And so because Christ is working His grace in me, that gives me even more reasons to glorify God when I do good works for Him. Do you see that? 
He's not talking about boasting about himself. He's not talking about indulging in the sin of pride. What he's, what he's doing is, is what he has said earlier that he was going to do, which is to boast in Christ alone and not in ourselves. Now, this is not possible before you trust in Christ. I kind of already mentioned this when we're talking about being acceptable to God, but uh, when, when we're apart from Christ, no matter what work we do, Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. But I want to encourage you believers, the same that's true of Paul is true of you by faith in Christ, that once you have been justified by faith in Jesus, you can actually please God with your good works. You actually can. That's why it says in 1 Peter 2, 5, that we as Christians together are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. They're not acceptable to God because we're so awesome. They're acceptable to God through Jesus. Because even though we never get it quite perfect, Jesus makes it perfect on the way to God because he's died for our sins and to cover it all. We can actually please God as believers in Christ, and we can say, even as I do something that is a work for God, I glory in Christ because of it. I glorify God because I'm able to do this. Colossians 3, Paul puts it like this, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord and not Christ. Or excuse me, you are serving the Lord, Christ. There you go. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why we can say when we've actually done something for God, we can be happy about it. Not because we're prideful, but because we're happy about Jesus. We're happy that God would work for his good pleasure as he is at work in us. That's why it says, 1 Corinthians 1.31, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. So we trust in Christ. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And I want to encourage you, First Baptist Church of Matawan, you are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. And as we receive these bold words from the Bible, and, and as we serve God, we can glory in Christ for His grace at work in us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for... Uh, the grace that you give us in Christ. You give us forgiving grace. You give us cleansing grace. You give us growth in grace. God, we thank you for the evidence of your grace in this church and for each of its members individually. God, we, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us in giving us the scriptures. Uh, Lord, to, to speak to us boldly in ways that we need. And Father, I pray that you would grow us in grace upon grace as we seek to work in a way that would be honoring to you, that would glorify you uh, in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.